Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, it's probably inevitable that you and I turn this week to the social unrest that we've seen over the past week or so, the, the proximate cause of which was police shootings of two black men, one in Louisiana, one in Minnesota respectively, and then the ambush attack afterwards of a dozen policemen in Dallas, five of whom were killed. But even those events just sort of compounding something that was – already in the air, kind of a feeling that the, the social fabric in America may be fraying a little bit. And this gets us to a point that you touched on in a previous podcast. It's a way that you start a column that you recently wrote on this for National Review. And maybe we should just start here today by revisiting that point briefly, which is that America's relative success in cobbling together a stable, multi-ethnic society is, as a historical matter, the exception and, and not the rule, and, and furthermore, that the continuation of that trend is, in your view, contingent. So wh why don't you explain that principle? Well, we had a constitution and a declaration of independence whose logical trajectory and evolution is the society that we have today that is a, a multiracial but not a multicultural society. And although we were founded by European immigrants, the, again, the logic was that people could become American by assertion rather than the color of their skin. We've had a lot of problems with slavery and a civil war, etc. But essentially, we were evolving to a, the, the only one that I know in history of a multiracial society that worked. For a variety of reasons, that was considered either uh, either too slow or people found careers that could be invested by unwinding it. But we've had now 30 years of multicultural experimentation and hyphenation, and we're a nation now of collective grievances. Each particular group tries to self-identify as a victimized uh, group that has grievances against the majority. And the problem is that when you add all those groups up, there's not a majority. And it's a very lucrative multi-billion dollar business. And the problem with it is that at some point um, – it doesn't make any sense anymore because it's one thing, it's divorced from class. So you can have a poor white coal miner out of work in southern Ohio and he has to hear that LeBron James uh, has disadvantages over what he does. Or you have Asian Americans who make 110% of the average median income and they're dispossessed you know, in comparison to somebody from Bakersfield. So there's all these contradictions well beyond that we're a multiracial society. So if you take my family, I don't know what my nieces and nephews are. They're part Mexican-American. They're part Anglo. My sister-in-law is Mexican. I don't know what people are that are half this and a quarter that. And so it's not sustainable, this uh, hyphenation. We have a person in the White House that came to power by taking a butcher knife and cleaving the electorate into slices and then glued them back together for 52 percent and that's not sustainable. So, well, let, let me follow up with you on that point because yeah. you've been very critical in some of our past episodes of President Obama's reactions to yeah. a lot of this racial discord, especially the rhetorical tactic yes. he's taken. Yeah. In the aftermath of the 2008 election, there were a lot of Republicans at the time who said, I didn't vote for Barack Obama. I don't share his ideology, but the fact that he's the nation's first black president and that he seems to value comedy make me really hopeful that he can be a racial healer. 
how culpable, Victor, are those people for getting it wrong? What I mean is, was I there no them, way to I, tell back know, then, or were there early signs that? No, he you're absolutely right. I hold them. I wasn't one of those people, of course. I was very critical. I took a lot of heat from it, but um, you know, the Chris Buckleys, the David Brookses, the Peggy Noonans—I could name names all day—but. There was nothing in the history of Barack Obama that would substantiate that over sort of a racialist idea that, well, he looks black and therefore he's going to help everything. But he had no commonality with the American, African-American experience. He was biracial. He grew up relatively affluent as in prep school in Hawaii. He had a very undistinguished record at Occidental in Columbia. He was the only Harvard Law Review person who never published anything, his law, his law career, there was nothing distinguished in the Illinois legislature, the U.S. Senate. And he was kind of a preppy named Barry, um, Obama, Barry, Dunham, Barry, Sotero. And then all of a sudden he became Barack Hussein Obama when it was politically viable in Illinois. So I, I was skeptical. And then we heard, get in their faces in the campaign and take a gun to a knife fight in Philadelphia. And then we heard that his own grandmother who had heroically saved and scrimped to get him to prep school was a typical white person. And then we heard uh, that the people of Pennsylvania collectively were stereotyped as clingers and xenophobes. And then when he was president, we started right in with Skip Gates and a little psychodrama like that became proof in his eyes that police were stupid and stereotype. And then we had the son that he never had that would have been Trayvon Martin. And then he evoked Ferguson, even though his own Justice Department found no police culpability. He evoked that at the United Nations. And then we had the Maryland riots, and we even know that the black judge acquitted three people. And so he has this pattern. We saw it with Louisiana and Minnesota where we don't know the facts, the case hasn't even been adjudicated, and the President of the United States weighs in uh, for a racial agenda, almost like Eric Holder with the Black Panthers that were not prosecuted for voter intimidation, where he used the word, my people and nation of cowards. So it's a long, long history of things like punish our enemies, which he's used as well. And then we ask ourselves, is anything that he's done uh, positives that tried to lessen tensions. So he has three rappers to the White House. One had his ankle bracelet go off for he was under arrest for a felony uh, kidnapping charge. We had another person who was uh, had to cancel at the last moment because he was involved in child trafficking and pimping. And then we had Lamar Kendrick, the famous rapper that Obama said that his famous his most favorite album of 2015 was To Pimp a Butterfly, whose cover had a dead white judge with his eyes X'd out with black uh, people on the black males celebrating with a toast to his death. And now today, after this is over, uh, he has Al Sharpton to the White House, who in 91 dared the crowd to be, go out and kill a white person. He said, you know, I don't have any confidence in you because you don't off a pig. And he also has the Black Lives person who was arrested for disobeying a police order. So I think that the shelf life in Obama ran out. And he's so articulate and charismatic and wink and nod to the white liberal progressive cloud that, you know, I, I don't really believe all this stuff. I never let my daughter probably go out with any of these people that, that I court and I patronize. But uh, you know that. But I have to do this for my base. And that, that, that dis, disingenuousness has run out. So now – People are tired of that, and you know, a majority of the 
majority of the population is more likely to to embrace the argument of Heather McDonald than they are Black Lives Matter. That although it's regrettable that 25 or 26 percent of all shootings last year uh, of blacks uh, doubles their percentage in the population. Unfortunately, it does not even approximate their frequency of contact with law enforcement as evidenced by homicides, 52%, violent assault, way over 50%. And so she's making the argument that I don't think has been refuted that actually blacks are killed by policemen at far less the the rate of other minority groups given their rate of uh, contact or connections with police. And when you add certain other things, that there were more whites killed uh, than blacks and that whites commit far less percentages of the crime uh, than blacks do for their their size of the population. It's not an argument that Obama can keep using that has any veracity. And he's he's saying he's peddling an untruth. And anytime anybody does that, eventually it won't stand. And the problem, I guess, Troy, is larger. And I think we all know it, and that is – that in terms of economic achievement or per capita income or uh, incidents of illegitimacy or contact with police or incarceration, the black population, at least half of it, has not achieved parity in the way that many other minority groups, whether they're from the Middle East or Asian Americans or Latinos, second, third generation Latinos. And there has to be a reason for that. And that's a legitimate discussion, whether it's racism or you know, the, the uh, result of slavery or Jim Crow or, or ongoing racism or just path- social pathologies or the black leadership or government programs that encourage uh, reliance on um, social pro- – whatever you want to do, that's a legitimate debate. But that's not the debate we're having now. Well, and that takes me logically to the next question that I had for you, which is about six months from when we're recording this. We're going to have a new president, and I don't think anybody anticipates that these tensions are going to disappear when someone new takes the oath of office. But that fact in and of itself raises an important question. How much can these sort of centrifugal forces in American life, specifically on this racial issue, how much can they be changed by politics and public policy, and how much of it has to come from the culture? I think it all has to come from the culture, and – to some certain extent, we have an ossified economy with you know zero interest rates and no, almost no economic growth. So it hurts people on the bottom, as as everybody's pointed out under Obama more than anybody. So if we had a robust economy, if we were exporting coal, if we had Keystone built, if we had less regulations and the unemployment, the real unemployment rate was lower and everything, it would be better. But I think people are invested in the present chaos. So if someone were to say in a position of influence and power, I don't believe you and I'm not going to feel hesitant about saying that I don't believe you. And although I regret that anybody is killed by a policeman, I'm not going to judge until a judge and jury has brought the evidence and seen if there was police culpability. And then I'm not going to say that even if there is police culpability, that that's indicative of a nationwide pathology unless I have the statistics, the real statistics to back it up. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry. And I think that would end it. And then I think we have to take – the way I see it is it's a sandcastle, microaggressions, safe space, trigger warnings, um, 
the whole Al Sharpton phenomenon, Jesse Jackson saying outrageous things, Chris Rock getting up and saying this, the, the Black Entertainment Awards, a, di- a diatribe against white people, a columnist at UC Berkeley a couple of weeks ago, just a virulent race. That, that's all predicated on the majority population saying, well, we feel guilty. That, that's just venting. They don't really mean it. But in a multiracial society where you've institutionalized hyphenation, then what's happening is the liberal balkanization of the United States is creating a white identity. And they're right about that when they're worried about it. But they created it. And so if we're going to stop it, we have to say, call me a racist, call me whatever you want, but I'm going to judge and adjudicate things on the content of your character, not the color of your skin. And that's going to put thousands of people out of business. To that point, in in all likelihood, that next president that we were discussing is either going to be Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Whatever other virtues or vices each of them may have, neither one of them has been particularly soothing when they talk about <laughs> about race. How optimistic are you about the future of race relations under either one of those presidents? Um, I'm a little bit more optimistic with if it were to be Trump, just because he would be blunt and he would do something different. And I know that Hillary would perpetuate 70 years, and that is basically blame the system and blame uh, white privilege and as if, as I said earlier, that somebody in Bakersfield or Appalachia has more privilege than LeBron James or uh, something like that. And so I, I think that's the key to it is to say we're going to judge people on who they are, and that would – tell the black community, you know what, whatever the Latino community and whatever the Asian community or whatever any community, maybe we don't even want to use the word community, whatever people do, we're going to start saying illegitimacy is too high, drug use is too high, gang activity is too high, and we're going to change the ethos. And if we don't, people don't are not going to do what they did for us. They're not going to hold our hand and apologize, apologize 70 years after the civil rights movement. So that's – but it requires a different type of liberal consciousness. And I think a lot of the problem is that when I read the New York Times or I watch PBS or I listen to NPR, I see a particular white elite who puts his kids in prep school, who doesn't live near minorities, who doesn't want to live near minorities, and is a psychological mechanism of penance. We've talked about this before. He mouths these platitudes, and he sort of is in league with this racial industry. And we need to stop that. We need to tell Mark Zuckerberg, if, you, if you're so happy with open borders, then please tear down the walls around your private estate and let Hispanic people live next to you. And we need to, to say to David Brooks, if you think you're worried about Donald Trump, let's kit your kids in the public schools. We need to tell Barack Obama, if Jimmy Carter can kid, put his kids in the public schools, then get your kid out of Sidwell, Sidwell Friend. But, and that's part of this Brexit-Trump phenomenon. It's an anti-elite. And so it's going to be very hard to stop that backlash. It's not a racial backlash. It's a class backlash about the hypocrisies of this racial elite who keep telling everybody that they're blessed and exceptional and everybody else is insensitive and xenophobic or racist, and yet they don't 
they don't live the consequences of their ideology. So the final question I'll put to you, you mentioned the Civil Rights Act a, a moment ago. The touchstone for the pundit class over the last few months has been 1968. That's the analog that's being used for the last time that, according to these folks, you had American culture riven like this. Does that strike you as a fair comparison? Uh, in spirit, yes. In magnitude, I grew up during that period as probably a lot of people did. And as bad as Baltimore was, that was a, basically a two-block version of uh, Newark or uh, Flint, Michigan or uh, Watts. So in magnitude, no. But in spirit, yes. And then I would say I'm 62 years old and I would say that for the first time in my life um, – people seem to be self-segregating since the 60s. And by that I mean if I have a conversation with somebody of a different race or ethnic background, ethnic background and race are going to – they often are brought up in the conversation. I don't bring them up, but they bring up the conversation. And the reaction that they have is um, if somebody gave me a ride in a taxi who's a black taxi driver and he, he starts to give the lament that people can't get along and maybe we should just separate – uh, he, the old action, the old reaction from a white person was, "Oh, don't worry, we'll, it's going to get better." Well, now you say to him, "If you think you're going to, if that's true, and you don't want to participate, or you think it's hopeless, I agree with you." And then that, I guess, what I'm saying, Troy, is that the the race industry has nowhere to go because we're a multiracial society, and, and it's only going to work if you participate and you forget about your race. But if you don't want to do that and you want to keep harping on it. People are going to react to it and they're going to say, okay, if you want to self-segregate, go ahead. And that's going to lead nowhere. It's a nihilistic, but that's where we're headed. And so uh, the police have already started. They're saying, okay, if, we, if we're racist and we're stupid, as the president says, and we stereotype and we're all going to be condemned before we have a trial as racist, then I'm just not going to go into Chicago. I'm not going to go into Newark. I'm not going to go into Harlem. I'm not going to go into South Central. We were already starting to see that happen, and it's tragic, but that's what's happening. All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, remember you can stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.